welcome to the Be Glad movement. The following story is very close to my heart as a major win for the Be Glad movement. If you listened to the first episode where I explained what the purpose of the Be Glad movement was, and if you didn't, go and listen to it now, go on, (laughs) you'll know that even though I got the ball rolling with this project, it's 100% not about me. It's about the amazing contributors who share their stories so generously, and it's about the people who benefit from hearing those stories, most of which I will never have the privilege of knowing. Well, on this occasion, I am so very privileged to know that this story, which is about to be shared with you, did actually save someone's life. That person stumbled upon and watched the original video by chance in their time of need, and by doing so, they drew on the strength and positivity that Dave shared, and in that moment, on that evening, they decided not to take their own life. I know this because they reached out to Dave and thanked him. Listen on to hear Dave's incredible story of how he firstly survived a horrific motorbike accident. Warning, it might make you a little bit squeamish. This accident damaged his left leg so severely he had to have multiple skin grafts and was told he would only ever get a fraction of its flexibility back. And yet he defied the doctors and still went on to become a kickboxing champion. To how he used the power of positivity, veganism and immune boosting food and supplements to prolong his life in his personal battle with a highly aggressive form of brain cancer. This man is a true inspiration and his story deserves to be spread far and wide. It's a true testament to the power of the human spirit and a determination to never give up. Without further ado, I give you the amazing Dave Bolton. Hi, hi everyone. Uh, brilliant thank you so much for joining us um i'm going to pretty much say what i say to everyone that i'm going to get out of the way and just let you tell your story how it is in in your words so um over to you yeah um well it all started in uh, when i was 18 uh, i joined the military i was in the military police and at 21 i joined merseyside police um uh, started off at, at the bottom my story kind of starts there really um in 2004, um, I was riding most bikes. I'm, I'm massively into uh, adrenaline sports. Uh, I snowboard, skydive, bungee jump, speed, adrenaline. That's, that, that's, that's what I love to do. Okay. Uh, I went out uh, into Wales with my friend, uh, Russ Parker. Um, stunning day, perfect riding conditions. Um, I was just been to the Ponderosa, which is a nice kind of famous um, cafe where bikers go. Um, after we'd had a, a brew there, I was going, I lent into a corner and came on what's called the power band. So I came on the actual power. Um, unfortunately for me, there was diesel on the road. So the bike, I used to tell it to say that the bike dropped down and slid across. What actually happened is, as I've lent in and come on the power, it's twitched the back and a natural reaction is I, I jab the brake. And one thing you should never do on a corner is a brake, but it was a natural reaction. So that then sat the bike upright and went across the other side of the road. Wouldn't usually be a problem, but on the other side, there was a articulated lorry, HGV, coming on the other side. And when you say time slows down, like you see in the movies, 100% it does. As I've gone starting to go across that road, the lorry must have been a couple of feet away from me, if that, um, probably slightly more. But I went through a full conversation and it went, right, this is bad. How are we going to get out of this? Do we, do we go on the power and shoot across the far side? I couldn't because it was a massive drop being Wales, stunning scenery. I'd have gone off in, 
often probably killed myself. I then thought, should I bank hard left, go on the power to ride it, to get enough? Didn't have enough time. So my only option was to jump from the bike. So as I've made that decision, I've jumped off the bike, trying to get away from it. The bike's hit the front of the lorry. I've landed on my back and slid under the front two wheels of the uh, articulated lorry. Luckily, luckily, I remember the whole thing, went onto my back, slid under, both wheels went over my leg. And I knew it was bad because uh, my left leg snapped up above my head. Oh my God. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, No pain whatsoever. Your body's a, a miraculous thing and kicks in loads of endorphins. So I was lying there underneath the HGV um, and I, just, I was just waving to say I'm still alive, I'm still alive. The guy gets out and I'm a massive, massive believer in faith. Um, behind me was an off-duty paramedic. Um, she, came to, she came to the scene and I, I was waving um, and I knew it was bad. I could see, I, I, I could feel my legs so I did a quick check. Yeah, my toes moved, not too bad, but there was blood everywhere. Um, oh. And I thought, I think I might have gone through an artery here. So I knew, even in that kind of crisis situation, I had to stay calm. Because if I carried on, if I panicked, I would have bled out more. So even at that stage, I still knew I had to be calm. So I lay there, just chatting away, trying to keep calm. Um, I took, started taking my helmet off, and everyone was trying to grab me. And I said, no, I know. I remember the whole instant. I've not hit my neck, my back. It's all lower leg injury. So I took it off um, and threw that across the, the, um, the road. Right. At the same time, my friend came back, obviously horrified at what happened. The bad thing was, there was petrol and diesel all over the road, off the bike, off the original slip. People knew the road was about to be closed, so they were driving past my head when I was on the floor by about that much. Constantly wow. going, they knew the road was going to be closed. Oh uh, my. And, me, and my friend Russ actually stopped one of them and said, listen, this is, he's, he's critical here. Um, <laughs> basically the guy went to go and he lent in took his keys off said you're not getting them back until he's moved so right. that was good yeah so it, felt, it felt like an eternity for the ambulance uh, to arrive so everyone was just talking to me and keeping me you know what do you do for a living and then uh, the ambulance crew turned up and went to cut off my boots uh, and said oh we're gonna have to cut your boots off do you mind I said they cost me like 300 quid then like laughing with them mm-hmm. even at that point and they said well it's 150 now so that, got, so that got cut off. Um, they then said, we're going to have to get your airlifted because you won't, they didn't say it to me, but they said it to us, we're going to have to get him uh, airlifted because he won't make it to the hospital. This is, he's likely to prove I, I'm likely to die on the side of the road. Wow. Air ambulance came in and obviously they strapped me to the board and everything. Passed me over a fence into a field, got pushed in through uh, in the back of the helicopter. And basically, when I was in there, they said, uh, you ever been on a helicopter before? I said, no. So it's weird, really, because I used to work on a, a tri-service base, which was predominantly helicopters. So it's a bit of an extreme way to get in one. I said, well, I'm in one, though. And then he just said, um, I'm just going to give you something for the pain. I said, I'm not in any pain, you know. He said, it's because you're in shock. He said, I'm just going to give you something for pain. And I felt this cold thing in my arm and then nothing else. Um, I'd slipped into a coma. I was putting in an induced coma for a week. Um while I was out, uh, I'd gone through a uh, 12-hour operation on my legs, uh, and the extent was I was 30 seconds away from bleeding out when I got to the hospital. At one point, they were putting blood, blood in, and it was just spraying out my artery and my leg. I'd crushed wow. both legs, my left leg that took most of the damage. Um, I had a 12-hour operation. I think it was like 36 blood transfusions. Uh, I had to have six metal steel pins external called an X-frame sticking out my bone 
three, three, and three, three. And the reason why I had that was because I completely degloved my leg. Oh. So, uh, so I had no skin whatsoever around the whole, probably from above where my boot was, so midway up my shin to just above my kneecap. Right. Completely gone. Uh, I lost, I've only got a quarter of a calf left now. Crikey. It was hanging on by tendons uh, and a bit of muscle. My family were told that I was going to lose my leg. Um, at that time, um, I just got into the Great Britain team, kickboxing, sport was my life, hockey, rugby, football, you name it, I played it. So I was 24, I think, at the time. Um, that would have destroyed me. Um, we've got through the, the uh, surgery. Um, I also, on the other leg, I've got no ligaments still in this leg, in my left one. Um, it's held together with scar tissue now. Wow. In my right, on the right leg, um, I shattered my kneecap completely. So uh, that had to be X fixed with wire and put together, and that was in a full cast up to my thigh, uh, up to my up to my hip. I had a massive X frame on this one, which required um, skin grafting, which I hadn't had at that point because I was at Glencliffe Hospital. Um, yeah, so a lot going on. Um, I came; they tried to bring me round after a week, uh, but apparently I was crying. I was in too much pain, so they put me back under. The next day they did, and that's when the first kind of hazy remember. It's not like the films where you come round, oh wow. First thing, I went to grab, I was intubated, so I tried to grab the, um, the intubation tube that went into my lungs. But if oh. I was to rip that out, I'd rip my lungs out. So I was oh. pinned down, mm. and then they slowly pulled it out. And I just, the first thing I remember is not being able to breathe. And they were like, come Dave, breathe, breathe. I was just there going, and eventually I was like, and then everything's hazy from there. I don't really remember too much. I was heavily, heavily sedated on morphine, on all different types of stuff. I was transferred to Wiston in Liverpool for skin grafting their specialist burns unit. For the first three, four weeks, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I contracted what was called morphine psychosis. Okay. So basically, you're not supposed to be able to overdose with, a, um, with morphine. But what was happening with me is I hadn't got a clue what was going on. I was hitting it three times and passing out and going to sleep. I'd wake up, I'd hallucinate that I was in surgery, panic, hit it again, three, and I'd do that all night to the point I overdosed on it massively. Okay. I, was I was having hallucinations as real as me and you were talking to each other now. The nurses were all out to get me. They said they were going to poison my cornflakes. Um, I hardly spoke while I was in there at that time because um, I was terrified they were going to poison me. I'd literally see them like we're talking and they would say, um, he shouldn't even be in any. He did this to himself on a motorbike. Let's, let's poison this, which was bad enough. I then saw my mum be executed in front of me because I thought the, I know it sounds stupid and funny, but I thought the, the hospital was being raided by terrorists and they dragged me mum in and told me, asked me where, where so-and-so was and I didn't know who it was. So they shot her in front of me. Uh, I didn't know actually what had happened to my legs. I hadn't come to terms with why I was in hospital. Um, there was funny bits where apparently there was a guy across and I, and I thought he was eating a pizza from um, Pizza Hut or Domino's or the, whatever. So I was going to him, oh, that smells really nice, that, mate. And he goes, oh, do you want a piece? I said, no, mate, you, you enjoy. Apparently he was just sat there looking at me and I was talking to him and he's going to his wife, what's he talking about? That was a bit of fun. That. It culminated after about three weeks where I thought I was in a mental institute in Canada and I was rocking in my bed. I think my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, um, who we'd only just, another thing, we'd only just found out she was pregnant the week before with our mm. first. Um, her and my mum got, got a bit worried 
and said, this isn't right, this. So they got the doctor down and he said to him, he's not right. And he, he, I said, and I just got this moment, I currently said, can you take me off everything? I don't know what's going on. He said, you'd be in too much pain. I said, I'd rather be in pain and understand what's going on than not know what's going on type thing. So it took a couple of days for, for the meds to wear off. And I just woke yeah. up one more, looked at my leg, looked at my other leg, looked where I was and just burst into tears. I couldn't, I couldn't believe, I was like, what's happened? And my mind was like mush and I had my mobile phone with me. And like, the first thing I wanted to do was phone, was phone my girlfriend. So I was like, wait, wait. But it was locked and I couldn't remember my, 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 my pin code. Right. So they dragged the telephone for me. I couldn't remember her phone, so I had to phone my mum. Phone my mum, like burst into tears, and then phone, phone, phone the wife. Uh, she's my wife now. Phone, yeah. phone my girlfriend. And that was the start of a very, very long and painful recovery. Um, luckily, they hadn't amputated my leg. And they said the only reason why I'd kept my leg was because how of the how strong my veins and muscles were in that through kickboxing and sport. I said nine out of 10 would have lost that. So I had this, I still had my leg, but I had to go through um, about eight operations in Wiston, skin grafting. So what they do is they take, and they've done it on mine, they've took the top layer of skin off on my thigh, they put it through a mangle and they kind of fit it out and then they lay it on and then put staples on. And apparently only 60% of them take, all of mine took, so I was quite lucky. Wow. Down, having that was my leg was fixed for so long in a straight line that once they'd all taken and this cast on my right leg had come off, it wouldn't bend because the scar tissue had grown. I then had to learn how to walk again because I was told you will never walk properly ever again, right. which was quite hard for me to take. As I said before, with you know, sport was my life. I had all these thoughts of, oh, I've got, I've got a, a baby coming. I'm not going to be able to run and play in the park with it. So I had all these kind of thoughts. But the first part was getting to move my legs again, and it sounds stupid. I, they were like, right, pick your leg up. And I physically didn't know how to do it. I'd been in bed, in the same bed for three months wow. before I started. I'd not seen daylight. I'd not seen fresh air. I'd not had a proper shower. Uh, the lads used to come and visit me. We had, like, young nurses. They'd all be sat around me, talking to me, because I was on a wall with a lot of old people. They'd all be going, oh, get in a bed bath, the most degrading thing I've ever had. Mm. I couldn't move, if you remember. And where my skin graft was, was like being stung a thousand times by scorpions. On, it was like acid on it, it was constantly on fire. So every mm. time I had got rolled, I'd be in absolute agony, because all your nerve endings are on shit, all your nerve endings are on show. So it was, it, was, it was brutal, and I had to kind of wipe paraffin into it every day which hurt yeah. then every time I got rolled I got hurt but going back to where I was so then the nurses would be sat there and the next thing I'd need the loo they'd have to roll me over put a bedpan under me I'd have to go they'd take roll me back over in agony again they'd have to wipe myself it was the most degrading experience of my life was being in that bed and one of the nurses took pity on me and said You've not, have you been outside yet I said no I said and it was the windows were behind me, so I was facing not not a window, so I never saw the outside. Oh. She goes, give me a second. She came back, she didn't take you outside. I said, I can't, I'm stuck in a bed. She, she wheeled me all the way out to a fire door, opened the fire door, and I can't really explain that feeling of fresh air, sun on my face, and she just left me for a couple of minutes. It was one of the best experiences I've had. I know it sounds a bit stupid, but yeah. It doesn't, so got, it doesn't yeah, sound so, stupid. It's the simplest things that can bring you so much pleasure, isn't it? massively and 
so there, that, that was a good start for me. Um, but when I was doing the, um, that, was a, that was a good moment for me in that hospital at the time. But just going back, going backwards, I've jumped ahead a, a little bit. Um, I was due to go down for surgery on, on my leg to get the skin grafting. And then they put me off that day and they cancelled it right at the last minute because an emergency came in, which we got, so it's fine. So mm -hmm. I had like a yogurt and that was it before. And then I was nil by about. I got cancelled every day for the whole week. So um. I literally yogurt every night. It got to the point where I was six and a half stone. And that wow. would be 12 and a half. My, my weight back then when I was fighting was like 13. So I'd gone down six and a half. And I was, then they were saying, well, we don't know if he can get made through surgery. So he, the sister there on one of the ward rounds said, he's going down tonight, whether you like it or not. He said, I don't care. And, um, and he walked off and she just turned to me and went, they think they're in charge, but it's us. Lo and behold, I was first on the list, went down and, and had that operation. Awesome. But all them through, they'd all taken. I still had that big, the X frame in. No longer got the cast. I then had to start learning how to walk in. As I said before, trying to pick my leg up, struggled. Eventually, one morning, I managed to do it. The thing is, because I've been lying down for so long or sat up, my blood pressure was terrible. So when I started to learn how to walk, as soon as I got sat up with the physio, I'd pass out. Oh, that first one. So then, so that took about a week, three, four days to a week of learning to sit up straight without passing out. The next bit was as soon as I dropped my legs over the, the side, they'd pass, I'd pass out again. And it was a constant standing up, passing out. And it was always, the first time was quite funny though, because I, I sat up and I passed out and I, and I came around and I was on her shoulder and I thought, I fell asleep. I can't <laughs> believe it. I just passed out. Below load, I got through it. I started walking with like a Zimmer frame, um, and then got released to Arrow Park, which is round the corner from from mine. So yeah, so got to Arrow Park. Uh, I was only in there two, three weeks, and I had to have the pins taken out. And the doctor came across, and I was sat there. And I was ready, and but no one had ever seen this, and it was it, it didn't go down to surgery. They were just going to take them off at the bed. So all the nurses and doctors at Arrow Park were all crowded around me because they'd not, they'd not seen it. Wow. Right. He said, it may hurt a little bit, but you'll be all right. Started, his junior did it. He started screwing in, and there was this crunch, and I was in agony, and I was biting into a screaming into a pillow. He then stopped it and said, have you had any, um, any painkillers? I was like, no. And he went, what? So I got some more off. And also, what he did, he then said to his juniors, you're twisting that the wrong way. He was actually going into oh my, my bone. God. When he goes, okay, I've got, he says, no, I think this lad's been through enough. And he removed them at there. After that, I was released. Uh, I came home. So I was about four months, I think, in hospitals, different hospital. Glenn Cleary, Wiston, finished in Outer Park. Um, went, uh, got released home and I went to live with, with back with my mum. So I was in a flat, top store flat. So getting upstairs, mm -hmm. quite hard. Just went back there and started doing physio at uh, Clatterbridge doing physio for about six months and I could literally only got about 10% movement in my leg and basically gave up on me. Wow, so they stopped, gave up on you? Yeah, I don't know what to do. My, my, um, literally, I didn't have any more appointments after a few months. So I was like, so I was at home hanging weights off it, just doing anything I can. Went to see a specialist doctor, um, pay private, supposed to be the top of his field. Went to see him. I was 24, 23, 24. And he just said to me when I went in, and he had a leg problem himself, you need to get over yourself. This isn't going to get any better. You need to man up. These were his words. 
he said, your two options are we amputate below the knee, which gives you the best kind of room for prosthetics, or we put a rod straight away and fix it. And I said, that's it. He said, yeah, so I'll come out, obviously in tears, floods. But yeah. refused. But went to see someone at the Royal, Dr. Nijmega. First thing I saw, he just manipulated the knee and it moved a little bit more. He said, no, I think we can, we can do something a bit with this. So I was like, great. Had two uh, manipulations whilst un under anaesthetic. And what they do is they put a block into your, your leg, a uh, muscle relaxant, they put you to sleep, and they basically crank your leg as much as they can. Wow. To give it so I had two of them, and each time I came around, and I started crying, this way crying, I said, no, it's not work. And he, he came to see and said, there's nothing we can do. He said, I literally was hanging on your, your leg. He said, if there was any more pressure applied to it, I'd have snatched your femur. He said, this is what we've got. You've got 45 degree movement for life, unfortunately. But I, again, refuse to accept that. And I've managed to get 100. So, Amazing. 100% movement in my leg. And I never move. And the thing is, people always go, but you regret going out on that day. No, I don't. Because who's to know I wouldn't have got killed the week after? You know, I, as I said to you before, I'm a massive believer in fate. I think this, this adversity this absolutely traumatic experience set me up for what i'm going to go on to talk about in a minute right. that was that and i got back to playing got back and then it's went back to work i was, I was, I was in the police um, went back to, to working found that i could kind of run okay had a bit when i run you can kind of see there was something wrong but i still had i could still run so i went back started playing football played rugby and i thought you know i'll go back to kickboxing and I only <laughs> meant I only meant training, coaching, because I enjoyed it. What right. I found was I was still really good. And just if I if adapted the style I fought, I was still good. So I started back fighting, won loads of local fights, went on to win the Welsh Open Series title. Obviously, because I was in Wales, when I got all that blood, technically I'm Welsh. So I thought, <laughs> I'll go for that one. <laughs> I'm but, but won that one, won the English, won the British, and then got asked to go to selection for Great Britain team for kickboxing. Amazing. Of hard training, like brutal. Got selected and I went out there in November the 2nd, I think it was, uh, in 2009. And I had five days of fights. So I had 11 fights over five days, which culminated me winning actually in the final against the Italian on his own home soil. Wow. That's uh, awesome. So, uh, so it was good. So it was a good kind of. And if the doctor ever was watching, he said, cut your leg off. Well, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, Dane, but I was just going to say. So, how long was it from having the accident to actually going back to work, kind of thing? How long? Because um, I, I was quite pro proactive in everything I do, and I do, and had the accident in September, and I think I was back in work within a year, but only on light duties. So right. I was only because I was promised I'd never go into half pay. Okay. And six months came on, I got dropped onto half pay. So uh. actually. Then they agreed to give me an extra two months. So then I actually, so it was nine months I was back in work. Right. But only the light duties, I'd get picked up, I'd get dropped off. I'd, I'd, and it was staggered, so I'd go in for two hours, then it was four hours, and then back full on the beat, passing, because I had a really good boss. Yeah. And basically, he said, well, I'll come on all the, when you're in the police, you've got to do like the PSP, which is like self-defense kind of, you know, cuffing and, so he came on it with me to make, because you sometimes get some, you go a bit overzealous, think the kind of macho man. So right. he did it with, passed all them, and I was back on the streets within 18 months. Wow. So 
Yeah, and then step back. Yeah, yeah. So not too bad at all. And then yeah, running everything's fine. Fast forward, career is going great. I've been promoted. I was a detective sergeant, uh, DS in Liverpool, in charge of kind of a covert unit looking at organised crime, gun, you know, gun crime. You name it, we were involved in it. High pressured. You know, I absolutely loved it. Come home, uh, left work one day. And said to my team, because I was one of the guys, I was always first in, so it was six, I was in it, got up at six in the morning, I was out the house by half six, in work for seven, I should have been home for three or four, I think I'd never got off on time, I was always first in, last out, because I was in charge, and that's what I thought I had to do, and it, it was quite a high profile unit as well, that we, sure. we just launched, it was a brand new one, that we just launched, and I was loving it, so I got home, and I said to my staff before I went off, it's my daughter's birthday tomorrow, so it's May the 1st, it's May the 2nd. If I am not off on time tomorrow, you can all go and find somewhere else to work. And then I'll laugh for them. So I left, got off late because we had a big firearms job in Cheshire and Merseyside. So I was coordinating that between everyone. Got home about 11. Ran, got in, had a bowl of cereal. Uh, the wife, because she was my wife then. Uh-huh. Was in bed. We got into bed. Went down. Next thing I know, I'm coming round to pressure being pushed on the chest. I'm like seeing like a luminous jackets in the room. And when I focused, basically um, I'd had a 15 minute seizure in my sleep and stopped breathing and was technically had died. So they were working on me. So I came round, but when I came round, I was groggy as though I just woke up. I was like, what are you doing in my room? And I had to be convinced by my wife that I'd had a seizure because I didn't believe her. I said, no, I'm fine. Can you get out of my room? Like that. And I think that it was only when I turned around to look at my wife, sorry, and she wasn't there next to us, and I looked, she was crying there. And I still didn't believe it, she goes, and she's a, she's a nurse, and she goes, she doesn't swear, she goes, do you effing think I would phone the ambulance if there was nothing wrong with you? And at that point, I looked at my pillow, and there was blood all over my pillow, and I bit through my tongue at the back, during oh. the seat. And then I suddenly went, oh, my shoulder, I dislocated my shoulder as well. Wow. So then I thought, right, okay, let's go. And I knew there was something wrong when they said, so what do you do for a living? I said, oh, I'm in the police. Where do you work? I don't know. What's your date of birth? I don't know. And I was like, oh, no, something's not wrong here. right here. Went into the back of the ambulance, got taken to hospital. They thought I had uh, bacterial meningitis. because yeah. I, I was covered in spots. But it was because the, the seizure was that violent. I burst all my kind of blood capillaries. My, oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I'm a wife being wife. We, I was in quarantine in resource, and she said, You're too well. She goes, There's no way. And then at that point, the memory started coming back, and I kind of knew everything. And at one point, I was like, Right, once we're done here with the blood tests, I'm going, This is ridiculous. This um, went through loads of blood tests, like um, injections, scans, and then it was when I went for a CT scan, came back up, and they said, We want you to go down with a contrast with a dying. So, okay. Got that, went upstairs, and it was my daughter's birthday this day, and that was now May the 2nd. Of course, yeah. We associate it, because I had the seizure about quarter to midnight on the first, so that was the day it happened. And um, all my family had come in to see us and everything. And then the, 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 the consultant came in, and she just she looked at me and was taken back because I was in a side room. She goes, oh, I've got your results. Do you want me, do you want me to do it in front of me? I said, no, I want everyone out, bar my wife. Right. So obviously, they all went out. She sat down and I knew it was bad because she had, you could see her eyes had glazed over. I said, just tell me what it is. And she went in. 
unfortunately, we think you've got a, a large um, brain tumour at the front of your uh, hemisphere, your brain, in the gliome. The brain We're not a specialist hospital, though. So we've liaised and we sent the scans over to Walton uh, Neurological Centre, amazing place. And yeah, that's it. He said, unfortunately, it was a bank holiday weekend. This was the Friday. Right. Your appointment is until Tuesday. He said, and it was, it was, it was something that was absolutely cracking the flags. And he said, there's nothing we can do for you here. We can give you, I had to go on steroids, medical steroids. You can take them at home. We don't want you in here till, till that Tuesday, so we're going to send you home. So I went home that night. And the only way I can describe the next four days was like being on death row. Because yeah. previously, about three, four months before, I was working the Liverpool Everton game, and one of my staff, I was on the series, he wasn't one of my staff, but he was put with us. We were in yeah. a bit of bands. I support Liverpool, he sports Everton. The next day, he had a stroke. He died three months later of a brain tumour, a glioblastoma, multiformer. So all I had head is, that's going to be me, that's going to be me. And, all, and the way I explained it was like being on death row for four days. And when I got to the appointment with the, at Walton, that was like the governor saying, yeah, you've got a reprieve, you've got another chance. And that's exactly how it felt. And when we got in there, I explained this to them. And they said, well, there is something we can do. And it was like a weight off, off my shoulders. Right. Um, so we don't know what it is, but it is a low grade because it's glowing up white, so it's not holding the dye. Um, sorry, it's holding the dye or the other way around. If it's black, it means the cells are dead and it's mutating. So I was like, okay. Um, and then he sent us away with no plan. And it was, uh, I was like, what? And it was like two, three weeks of chasing up. And my wife was on the phone to secretaries all the time, and I was just in this limbo. So you had this appointment, you got yeah, some, some information, yeah. but... Oh my goodness, yeah. And it was like, and I was waiting because they go, they sent it to an MDT, a multidisciplinary team meeting, where they have physiotherapists, radiologists, and everyone's in and they discuss people's cases. And we kept phoning up and he said, oh, we put your, so part of me was like, well, it's not urgent, so it's not that bad. But then I've still got this, it was the size of a tennis ball as well, lump in my head in the front. And eventually my wife got through and said, yeah, you're booked in for surgery and, they, and as soon as I found out that I had a, a, a fake surgery, I thought, right, something's happening. Because at that point, there was no plan. I was in limbo, and I thought, what, what's going on? That's really scary, isn't it? Sort of not knowing what's going to happen. So then I was told I couldn't train. As I said, training has been my life. Um, I was told I couldn't lift weights, couldn't do anything. I was like, okay, what can I do? And without my wife knowing, but she, she did, I felt as I couldn't sleep. For the, those six weeks, I had two hours sleep a night. So I'd wake up and I'd, I'd, and the bed was like a prison to me. It was like, you're sitting there, sleep, got to get sleep. All these things going through my head, right? I'm going to die. I'm not going to walk my daughter down the aisle. I'm not going to grow up to see my, my son. You know, I, I'm going to leave my wife, a widow. Or what's she going to do about the house? And I wasn't concentrating on my health. And it was, it was yeah. all, this, all this swirling in my head. So when I eventually fell asleep, as soon as I woke up, bang, it would go again. My mind would race. So I'd either come downstairs and I started decorating the whole house, um, painting. <laughs> and then other times I'd just go for a run. And I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> but at home, me being me, back then, I was a man. I'm not supposed to show any sign of weakness. So I didn't want to cry in front of the kids or my wife. So I'd go for a run. And the first mile, I'd be running and I'd be in just tears, letting it all out. Second mile, I'd say, like, 
get yourself together. Third mile, because only, I only did a three and a half mile. Um, third mile would be me like, right, you're going to beat this. Yes, come on. And I'd get back and the endorphins would be flowing, that positivity, and I'd, I'd be all right. Then my me, me wife then caught me showering. She what have you been doing? So I went mm-hmm. for a run. Oh, I was tore strips off me. And she was right because it was dark at night and it was like five in the morning and I'd had a seizure in the night. So if I'd have dropped down and had a seizure, right. nothing on. But what I did say is like, I've got my phone on me. It's got my emergency contact. I had my steroid card. You get a card. That's on me with everything that who I am and your details are in that. So, but she understood. I think I needed that as a bit of a release. Oh. And then, and then went in for surgery. Um, quite used to being having surgery, so I quite liked being put to sleep because okay. not when, when I was kickboxing. I had surgery on my on my on my thumb, my knuckles. I quite used to having surgery, especially with my leg, and I quite used to like being put to sleep and trying to fight it. So much different this time around. I was absolutely terrified. They come up and they obviously say there is a high chance that you're having brain surgery now, so you're going to have the craniotomy. So they cut a square in your skull, take that out, and operate. So there is a high chance that it could be fatal. Not only that, strokes, aneurysms, infections, or you know, they go through everything. And I was just sat there going, right, okay. And when they were wheeling wheeling me down in Walton, the brilliant award, Cairns Ward. Well, I can't rate them enough. As I was getting wheeled down there, I was in floods of tears, shaking, panicking, just going, oh, God. Because it wasn't only that, where mine was is also where your personality is as well. Right. So it'd come back and not be the same person again. So it was always, I had that in the back of mind. So even if I survived, and it's the funny thing, my wife said, wouldn't it be funny if when you came back, you had a really camp voice and you're like, hi, everyone. I was like, yeah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Went to surgery and when I went into the room, it was just a hive of activity. And like I say, I'm used to having operations on my leg. And there was three of everyone. And then there was two in the system. One leant over and said to the other one, does he need something? And he looked me up and down and said, no, he should survive this, I think. Oh my and, God. And, then, and then one of them went, are you, you all right? You've gone grey. And I, said, I was like, yeah. He said, do you want a, um, a, a pre-med? I said, what's that? And he said, it's just relaxing. I said, well, you just put me to sleep now. And we can get over it again. Do you know what? That's a good idea. Or she said, that's a good idea. And then, yeah. bang, gone. Recovered really well. I was up talking two hours after surgery. Surgery was four hours, three hours, uh, four with the uh, intensive care. What's supposed to happen is supposed to go to intensive care, high dependency unit, it back onto the ward. But I was up talking within t- two hours. Wow. And I said, oh, what day? Oh, no, it's still the same day. I went straight back onto the ward. My mum was there, my sister, my wife all there and they couldn't believe I was talking. I was discharged four days later. Amazing. Recover. My wife being a nurse took all the stitches out and cleaned up the wound that was on my head. Um, and kind of got back into the normal life and thought, great. Got back training. Was um, I'd already done my qualifications to be a strength and conditioning coach. And I, I took retirement. I chose to be medically retired. It actually said, you know, you can stay on. We'll still pay you. I thought, well, if I'm going to make a new life for myself, it's got to be done now. Right. And it was a sort of, when I was off work, every month I'd have to go and see the doctor to get a sick note because I couldn't have one extended. I thought, that's stressing me out. When I was in the gym, I'd see people, and I know it's stupid what I'm saying now, I'd see people training who I knew, and they'd probably think, and I'd be thinking, oh, they're thinking, oh, there's nothing wrong with him. Why is he off work? But I know that's, they wouldn't, but it was just how you play sure. things. But yeah. chose to retire early but I'd already done all my strength and conditioning qualifications and 
I started working at the underground training station. A year on, I turned to vegan. I was researching, so I thought, right, I'm, I ate kind of relatively well anyway through sport, but I yeah. massively researched everything. When the results came back, it was an astrocytoma, and they gave me uh, the histology of it. They gave me five years to live, and I want to know everything. And I yeah. said, well, how do I die in five years? I don't understand. He said, well, what happens? It will mutate into a glioblastoma multiforma. Then you've probably got, depending on how aggressive it is, three to 12 months, potentially 18 months. So I said, oh, okay, nice one. Virtually a year to that, to, to that day, probably a month later, I just got back from Amsterdam on mate stag do, went in for my results from a scan, and Professor Eldridge was there. And the thing with Professor Eldridge is, is he do, he's not very good with people. Okay. So I met Anna, uh, it was a neuro, Anna Crofton, who's a neuro, her, her neuro nurse, who's amazing. We had this quite good relationship as a team. So if I knew he was there, I knew it was bad, walked in, and um, yeah, it turned into a um, grape-sized glioblastoma multiforma. It's known as the Terminator. It always comes back. Um, yeah. Um, wow. My world came crashing down around me. It was just like, it was that bad that I had to be surgery that weekend. Wow. Had my sur- and then I was going in on the Sunday. Um, from scan to surgery, uh, surgery didn't go as planned. Scan to, it, it was a lot longer. From the scan to surgery, it doubled in size. Wow, that, in a week? Yeah, that's how aggressive it, is. it, it was. Uh, no, that was within three weeks. Okay, cranky. I had to, I had to wait three weeks from, for, the, for the results, so it was three and a half weeks. Yeah, so that, everything was just, sh- it, life just spun upside down once again. Um, but surgery obviously took a lot longer. I ended up spending 14 days in hospital. Um, I was out, it took a lot longer to recover. I was in a lot more pain. Um, I was in the high dependency unit for a, for a day or two. Um, and me being me, another thing is they took um, where the blood gases are out on the, on the wrist. Uh, and the nurse called Una, who I'm still friends with now, removed it and then put and um, said, oh, I need to get something don't move, hold that. So I right. took it off, I was like, oh, it's not bleeding. So I started getting myself ready, looked down and it was spraying blood everywhere. Oh no. I just remember shouting, Una, I'm bleeding out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the head nurse come in and looked, I said, no, it's my fault. She said not to. And obviously, patched it up. Um, yeah, about on day 10, 11, 12, one of the last days, a bit hazy, um, the nurse there, um, Christine, amazing, really good friends with her. Said, you're not leaving because you're not on top of the pain. So I just wanted to get out. Said, you stay until we have the histology. So they said, we've got the results. What do you want to do? Uh, she goes, come into the room with us. So I'm, I was walking fine. So I walked in. We all sat down. And you could see, and because I got on really well with Anna, and I said, listen, it's a glioblastoma, and I've got 24 hours to live. So whatever you say now is a bonus. And she laughed. said, yeah, no, it's a glioblastoma, but you do have more chance. She said, do you want to know your prognosis? I know you do. And I said, is it the standard? Because I already know it. And she goes, yeah. So it was three months without treatment, 12 months with, because mine was highly aggressive. Right. And then depression kicked in. Sure, I bet. Like, it really did. Um, I, had a, I had to recover six weeks from surgery, and then I had to start on radiotherapy and chemotherapy combined together. Um, 
yeah, kind of gave up on myself really, gave up on life. Um, sat on the couch, waiting to die. Yeah. And I really was, and I sat there and I thought, what's the point anymore? What is the point in being positive and doing all this when I'm going to die anyway? So what's the, what is the point? Yeah. So I sat, I sat on the couch and I literally was waiting to die. I was just sat there and then my wife came in and said, come on, let's go for a run. I was like, no. Why? I was like, what is the point of me doing anything like that fitness-wise? I'm going to die. What's the point in trying to get fit? What, you know, and I, I'd sank into this quite, quite deep depression. And yeah. um, I said, no, you're coming. And you know, you know, women always right. So she drags me out. We go on a 5K run. It was the worst run I've ever done in my life. I literally stopping. I was like retching. And I was going and Mrs. was way ahead and she beat me. And it's the only time she's ever beaten me at anything. So <laughs> I'll tell you that because she's not here at the moment. <laughs> edit that bit out. That's all right. <laughs> at night, I slept a bit better. I felt a little bit better. And the next day, I was sat there just before I was about to start radiotherapy. And I just had a conversation with myself on my own. But right, you've got two options. One is you can sit here on the couch like you've been doing, you know, waiting to die, being depressed, which, to be honest, I have every right to do. You know, the, the car's been dealt once again. Yeah. Or actually, I can spend the time that I have got left enjoying life with the family, being surrounded by, by the people that I love. So luckily, excuse me, it was a no-brainer. I chose that route. Yeah. And just to go back a bit, um, just before I was diagnosed in 2014, and people say, where'd you get your strength from, the positivity? Um, I lost my nine-year-old cousin to a um, neuroblastoma. And the way she dealt with it, for half her life, she dealt with it. Wow. In chemo, and she was the happiest thing. She was in pain. And I kind of thought, well, if she can, then I can, type wow. thing. I'm from, and, I, and again, fate, I think what I went through with that bike accident as well, that mental toughness, that had built that up in me. So I thought, you know what? And at that point, I still wasn't thinking I'm going to survive. I thought, no, you know, let's take the fight to it and see what happens. And I started, I called it Terry. And he was my opponent. And I started relating it to rounds, using something like my kickboxing. So every, yeah. every surgery was around. And that's how I, I got on with it. And I remember going in once to them and I was saying, oh, I've researched this and I'm taking this supplement and I've done this and this is anti-cancer. And basically any, anything that said was that would prevent cancer or inhibit it, I'd be taken to the point it was ridiculous. Right. Um, and then I started um, combined radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Um, tomorrow's I'd 150 uh, milligrams with and what happened I'd go to Clatterbridge 20 minutes before I'd get the tablets I'd take the chemotherapy tablets then I'd go in and have my um, uh, get strapped into a machine bolted in one of the worst things was before that was getting your mask made mould for your right. face but when you're in that machine you physically cannot you don't, you don't want to move because you've got these radiation greys going all over your head the machine spins around so if you go and it's targeting certain places so they're not right. blasting the your brain, but they're getting half of it. And obviously it leads to the onset, it can lead to the onset of early dementia, X, Y, Z. So you've got to be bolted in. So you'd be lock you in and you physically can't move. And you'll be thinking of something and suddenly you won't be thinking of anything. And it's like the rays were destroying those brain cells that were making you think. And it was a, but afterwards I'd go in all right and I'd come out frazzled and like feel really ill. I'd come home and I'd have to go to bed and just lie there and recover. Yeah. And my sister, Vivian, has been a rock. 
taken me. And when she got home, she got home probably she was crying because of the way I was. Um, went relatively okay through, through that period. In the last week, um, I'd gone to, um, I'd gone to uh, the Rugby World Cup, massively into rugby. Um, work, kind of work, a brand ambassador for Under Armour now. And um, got, they gave me tickets, a full experience to go and, as guest of honour, go and watch the game, watch the game, watch them lose, as you do. I was being, I was being um, first, only the second time ever, Wales had beaten England at Twickenham and I was there for one of them. But it was a good experience. But I was being sick quite a lot. And I was like, I should have seen the warning signs. After that weekend, I came home after a session into, into my final week of, of radio. Everyone was saying, you've done really well. I went to bed and I just had this one thought in my head because um, I had a cut on my skin graft and that morning I changed the sheets and there was all this soaked blood in and it, I thought, oh God, I might have got an infection in that. That one thought and suddenly I had a, I had a, um, um, a psychotic breakdown that led to me being outside in the streets, spinning round, shouting. <sighs> yeah, it wasn't good. Um, at the time we had done on the house, so the guy in there did, I hadn't got a clue what was going on. My wife came home and I was lying in the, in the front of the road talking gibberish. Um, at the time I thought I was talking sense, completely wasn't. Yeah. Uh, got taken into Clatterbridge, into resource, and then for four days on the stay ward and they were looking at section me uh, under the Mental Health Act. And it, um, but I was on a ward, which didn't, it was day one, people were coming and going. And there was one nurse there, it was horrible. And like, every time I tried to speak, she'd be like, oh, okay, okay, Dave, oh yeah, whatever. Oh. So I just, so, and then, but then there was a guy opposite me who had dementia, and he was saying that his daughter was on X Factor and was winning it, and she was all like, oh my God, which episode? Oh, I watched that. And I was thinking, yeah. sitting there, what are you going on about? You know he's got dementia. But when I said things, it didn't come out properly. So I learned, I just had to shut up and it was hard. And to prove it, that nurse, when I got released, she said, oh, you, you, your daughter's here to pick you up. I said, what do you mean, my daughter? So the daughter's like, at the time, she was like six, seven. She said she's yeah. seven. Like, oh, um, oh no, sorry, your girlfriend. I was like, I haven't got a girlfriend, I've got a wife. And she goes, oh, and when I was my wife, and as soon as I got wheeled out, I burst into tears because yeah. I didn't ever get off that ward. But um, it was one guy, they said, classified, sent up a neuro um, kind of guy for, who deals with that and straight away. just said, it's all right. He says, You're the, no, this isn't mental. This is something else. I had to go and see a psychologist. And basically, I was on medical steroids for too long. So I was on, I think I was on 16 milligrams or 12 milligrams every day for four or five months. So it, with the radiation, with everything, it just completely spiraled yeah. out of control. So, got through that, uh, and then had uh, a month off, and then started on double strength chemotherapy. So, basically, what happened is I'd have five days of chemotherapy tablets because it because it's the brain you protect the Bible of brain barrier. So therefore, right. normal chemotherapy in the vein. So if you got like a blood infection, if you didn't have that blood brain barrier, you'd be dead. So it has to cross the blood brain barrier two ways: stomach and under your tongue, sublingual route. So it was chemo tablets, in, and that's the same for when I was at radio. So the first cycle would be five days of tablets, a week kind of feeling rubbish, and then two weeks recovery time, like where I'm feeling okay. First one, five days, didn't give me enough anti-sickness. Start being sickness on the, sick on the sixth day. I was sick from 
nine o'clock at night till half ten in the morning. Oh. And basically what happened is, I, I don't feel well. I go and be sick. But I was that violent sick, I was soaked. In the end, I was just taking my clothes off, being sick for half an hour, getting back into bed. I'm like, there's a cycle. But what I'd having to do is because I was starting to get the lining coming up, I was just drinking water, knowing I, I'm going to throw it up in a minute. Yeah. Got to 10 o'clock in the morning, just looked at my wife and said, I can't do this anymore. So she phoned up and said, get into hospital now. Got to hospital, put me on a drip, give me a load of fluids, give me cyclozine, which was brilliant because I was completely out of it, couldn't even walk properly. Mm. Went home, right, we'll give you some more um, anti-sickness. Second cycle, exactly how the same happened, even though they give me more. Third cycle, they said, we've never had anyone be sick as much as you. We're going to try with this. Um, we've not given it to anyone. I can't remember what it's called. But it's one that they give for other types. That right. actually and they, they got set up for a syringe drive or everything that actually worked so then my cycle became lie on the couch for for those five days feeling like crap should we say watching uh onto our school hard knocks any series just sitting there second week we recovering just getting back on my feet and then the second and third uh, third and fourth week i'll be back in the gym training i had no hair i've lost all my ra- hair with radiation and yeah. it's just that was keeping me sane just keeping on top of like until the fourth cycle, where stupidly I went down the day I finished chemotherapy. The, ne- the next day, we went to the rugby with the lads, the Six Nations. Um, went there, I'd stopped taking my anti seizure tablets for two weeks prior because they said one, my doctor said I'd never have a seizure again. So part of me was like, Why am I taking them? But then he's on the ones I'm on, which is um, Kepra, which is the brand name, Lever, some anti seizure tablets anyway. Uh-huh. If you have one drink, it's like having six. Oh, correct. So I thought two weeks before, I'll stop it because I'm going to have one or two. That, that, that's it because I, I don't drink anymore anyway. Much. You know, once mm-hmm. in a blue moon. Um, so I had two Guinnesses and that was it. Um, decided, you know what, I'm going to bed early. And again, this is where fate plays. One of my mates dropped out last minute. So one of my, I got me one of my oldest mate, best mates came. He wasn't really into rugby. I said, you come. They all went out for a night out. I said, I'm going to bed. And he went, I'll come with you. Right. I, woke, I woke up two days later in a slow hospital. I'd had five seizures overnight. Now, if my mate wasn't in, with me, and it, like, because we're in the same room. Yeah. I'd have just been there on seizure after seizure after seizure. And the damage could have been horrific. Sure. Because of that, it cleaned through my tongue. So it was in half at the back. Um, I dislocated both shoulders. Um. And it's just the most surreal experience is going to sleep in a bedroom with your mate, coming around two days later with my sister and my um, wife there. My mum didn't answer the phone, so she wasn't there. Right. So that, that was, and I, I don't really remember much about that week because they pump you full of all sorts to stop you having seizures. But then, um, to really move this on, uh, yeah, smashed on, kept going, kept going. Next cycle was fine, next cycle... Then I was out, and then it was the recovery time. Um, and at this point, I'd started thinking, I want to be a new type of statistic now. Right. I'm not going to be this statistic that goes within 12 months. I'm not having that. I'm taking this fight to it. And I was researching, and that kind of meltdown as well made me think, you're taking too much. It's like a job. I had a list of stuff, supplements were taken. Right, cancer is a disease of the immune system. The byproduct is the tumour. So, right, let's target stuff that boosts the immune system. So then I just I whittled it right the way down to certain mm. supplements. 
um, that boosts your immune system. And to prove it, I'll take a thing called lip liposomal vitamin C. It's like the purest form of vitamin C in liquid form. I was taking 8,000 milligrams a day through chemotherapy. There was a family due at Christmas and half of them weren't going to come because they were quite ill. I said, just come, I'll be fine. I never so much, no, never so much picked up a sniffle. I had no immune system whatsoever. So I knew that really well. So that, yeah, getting on. During that time, uh, I lost my nan. I lost both my nans. In that four-year period, up to now, I'd, had, um, I'd lost my nine-year-old cousin to cancer. I'd, um, I'd, uh, I'd been diagnosed, I'd had a seizure, I'd had two times brain operations. I'd come through them. I'd had chemotherapy, I'd had a full psychotic breakdown. Um, I dislocated both shoulders, bit through my, my tongue, bit through it again so it's clean in half. Lost, me, lost both my nans. Um, my wife, we, we got, got pregnant with our third. And the day before I was flying to Las Vegas with my wife to see um, her cousin Tom fight in the UFC, um, she wasn't feeling well, a bit of bleeding, went in and we actually lost the baby. Aww. We'd had all that to deal with all this time. And um, yeah, it, it was hard to keep, keep sane Aww. and keep positive. But I don't know, but I just, I just did. I, yeah. I just thought, we've got to keep going for the kids. I've got two right. kids. Um, a big thing for me was, all my daughter and son have known is anyone who has cancer dies. Because before that, one of my, one of my closest friends, a, a bloke called Ian Wilde, I was very close with their family. His son at the same time as uh, my cousin Eve got neuroblastoma, he got leukemia. And he died just before, so because we were friends then. So my daughter and son knew Elliot, Elliot Wilde, who died. Eve, she died. I got cancer. During that time, um, Sam, my, my wife's um, uncle, got cancer and died. But he was he was eighty nine. But don't understand this. So everyone who gets cancer dies. Going on from there. Recently, obviously, I was supposed to do an interview with her a while ago. Um, yeah. My mum, a few years ago, got diagnosed with ovarian cancer, stage four, and ovarian cancer, you only know you've got it when it's too late. Right. Unfortunately, um, <sighs> she passed um, about three months ago. Yeah. Take time. Positive through all this, and I don't know how I do sometimes, um, but what helps me is helping others. Um, and off the back of my, my cancer, my friend, one of my friends, Matt, who was the one who was with us, with me, um, brain tumor, um, when I had my seizure, said, why don't you do a blog and just write about it? I said, don't yeah. worry. No, but it's a form of therapy. And a couple of things, I started doing a blog. Then I, then I set up a Facebook page and started just, you know, documenting my, and I, I did it raw. Like one of the things was, um, have you ever seen your dad cry? And it was, it was like, and I got so much so that it, at one point, and I've not checked, I don't, do the blog side of it so much anymore. I do the Facebook page more. Um, yeah. Over half a million people have read it in 48 countries. In some countries, I didn't even realize they had internet. And right. I was getting messages from all over the world saying, not just from people who are in my situation, but like carers saying, because I did a whole piece on radiotherapy and took my kids in to show them and put pictures and everything. They're saying, my son won't speak to me about stuff like this. I don't know what goes on when he goes behind those doors. Thank you. Or I'd have messages saying, I now understand what's going on in my son's head at night. And so for me, 
turning my horrific situation in a negative into a positive by helping others is probably the best way. I think the most rewarding I can come out of this situation. Yeah. And what I can I'm not, now I'm kind of getting involved with motivate. I do a lot of motivational speaking, and um, what I like to and it's something I don't get. People are going, "What? You're such an inspiration." It doesn't sit with me whatsoever. That I just for me, I'm just a dad, a son, a brother, a friend, whatever, who just wants to live. I just want to live, and if I can help people along the way, then I will. And by yeah. By blogging about my story and all the research I'm doing and showing how well I'm doing, I'm inspiring others to do the same. Because when I was at the beginning, you told, don't go on Google, you know, don't research, there's nothing out there. And there wasn't. And I found a, a woman in America called Cheryl Proyles, Boyles, and she'd been living with it for 16 years. Wow, 16. Right, hope. So I thought, well, maybe I can be that hope. And now I'm four, four or five years past myself by date. I'm getting people saying thank you. You're you're giving me hope, and that's all I kind of want to be now. Is this hope and showing? Look, if I can do it, you can. The big thing with cancer patients is I've found that people go through adversity is they just give up. And what yeah. I say is, you know, quitting is is permanent, but and I'm failing to try is is permanent. I've got that a bit slightly wrong, I think. But anyway, quitting is forever. But yeah. if you try then that you know oh yeah, I'm getting it, I'm getting it all mixed up I say it really well usually when I'm doing a motivation week. but for me you know quitting's forever and that's yeah. not my I don't quit if I'd have quit and listened to the doctors when that, that leg I wouldn't have a leg I wouldn't have gone on to win a world with kickboxing champion if I'd have listened to them saying you know there's nothing you can do um, go away enjoy the time you had and eat what you want I wouldn't be here speaking to you now yeah. and what I can say is for me and a lot of people think go what I'm actually grateful now for this, what happens wow. to me. The positives massively outweigh the negatives. In so much so is, obviously I wouldn't be speaking to you here now, would I? Sure, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm feeling like I need to put a disclaimer in and say that I haven't paid you to say no, that. No, I don't get paid for this. <laughs> I don't get paid for a lot of the stuff I do. It's just me trying to help others. But um, little things like I got to walk my daughter to school. You remember what I was saying at the beginning? I'd be working 16 hour, hours a day. I wouldn't see them in the morning. I wouldn't see them at night. I'd go in and kiss them on the head and stuff, but they wouldn't know I was there. Weekends, I'd be tired. I'd be playing rugby and I'd be doing other things. Now, walking the door to school, just simple things. Go and see their plays. Go and see my son doing his sports days. Playing his, I'm there more. I've got better relationships with my family. Not that I had bad, bad ones, but with my yeah. sister, I feel weird if I've not spoke to her in two days, whereas before, I could go a month because I left yeah. home at... 17 to join the forces so I've always been away in that so now it, I get closer bonds and relationships um, I wouldn't have gone on to have done the experiences that I probably would have otherwise I'm working in a gym that I love I'm getting you know and off the back of that I've then been on the heist yeah. I wouldn't have been on that because I do motivational speaking and word of mouth so it's all the little things and I love life and I wouldn't swap my life for anyone yeah would I have preferred not to have gone through this and gone through the pain to find this? Yeah, obviously. Would I have preferred not to have depression? Obviously. But I still wouldn't. If I was to drop dead next week, I'd have no regrets um. whatsoever. And that's kind of what I try and get across. Obviously, I'm not going to drop dead next week. I, I, in my head, positivity is huge. And same people, I get a lot of people messaging me probably about nine, ten times every day. 
messages from all over asking for help and stuff. And again, saying to them when they've just been diagnosed, positivity is key. You've got to be positive. You've got to have a reason to live. You've got to want to live. It's hard saying it. Yeah. Because I put myself back into that when I was first told. You're just in floods of tears and you just want to give up. And it's getting over that. And I always say that to them. I do say it to them. You will be down. And the good thing is, everyone says you're always positive all the time. You live with a terminal cancer. You've got this going on, this going on. And you're always fine. Yeah, I am. But you, I do have the odd down day sure. where I am down. And I just think I can't be bothered, you know, sod the world. I'm not going out today. I'm not doing anything. Done. And what I say is you can have those days. But at the end of that day, draw a line on in the sand under it. Go to bed thinking tomorrow's going to be a good day. It's been a bad today. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. Go to sleep. Wake up and crack on. If it continues to go into the next day and the next day, then seek help. Because that's when you're going to start suffering with depression like right. I did. Luckily, snap yourself out of it. And I didn't realise I had depression really until I had that psychotic breakdown. And then I yeah. look back and what the hell was I, you know? So yeah, so um, yeah, it's just been a roller coaster of up and downs. You were saying about um, telling people that are going through it now that have maybe just been diagnosed. Of all yeah. the people that can tell them that they need to be positive, yeah. you're the you're the person to do it because yeah. I, I haven't suffered like you have so me saying that to them they're just be like oh it's all right for you love but the fact that you've actually been there yeah, done yeah. that lived through all those horrific experiences that you are the person that can can honestly 100 percent say that positivity has helped you through it all definitely yeah. oh yeah without without a shadow of doubt if it wasn't as positive as it was i probably wouldn't be sat, sat here now and that, that's just simple that's, that's how it is and uh, yeah, I'm loving life now. So um, yeah, I've got, I've got work at the underground training station. And um, off the back of that, there's a thing called the foundation now, which was inspired by me uh-huh. from there, what they do now. And it, it, it's massive now. Um, so pre, post cancer peak patients go in, free sessions, free bespoke classes for them. Uh, but it's also going in. I now work, I now go out into schools and do a thing called Active Minds Project. So I'm in schools, I'm teaching them how to keep them healthy and active. It's really good because exercise inhibits cancer by up to 40%. Okay. Not a lot of people that. So I think you should be prescribing sport. And this is what we're trying to do now. Uh, the directors there are now working with Macmillan, and we're working with Macmillan, with GPs, trying to get um, referrals from GPs to our, to our gym. To wow. them. We've got a proper physio there. We've got a, um, an assessment nurse. It's all set up. They, they assess them and then direct them to which class they should be best suited. Um, but I also now go and work with the um, um, people with learning difficulties, also mm. physical um, incapacities, um, saying that there is a way you can. You can do sport, regardless, look at me. And I also mm. speak about um, adversity, facing it full on. And, and it kind of... and. Is working well. I've also done a, um, a bit with crime with the police, and there was a place in New Brighton where there was eight kids, and we picked them. They, they're all antisocial behaviour, behaviour going down, heading towards that life of crime. So we got them into our gym, and I coached them. Didn't tell them I was a police officer because that would defeat the whole object. They wouldn't listen to me. Oh, but telling them I was a world kickboxing champion did have it. Get, <laughs> get a bit of respect there. <laughs> so um, got them in at peak time, seven to eight. And at first, when they were starting, they were F this, F. Yeah. 
by the end, most of them were really good. And there was one girl called Cassie. And when I was younger, I remember my mum saying, one of your teachers said to me, um, if we could bottle what he had, we'd be a millionaire, but you have to be careful. He's going to go one or two ways with, with, with what he's got. And it's up to you to kind of guide him. I think that was massively hyperactive, massively. Probably had ADHD back then, but it wasn't described. So they channeled me through sport. Luckily, I went on to win world titles and all, all this thing. Brilliant. I saw this in her. She was good at everything. So I just Hi. said to her, you need to get your dad to take you to a kickboxing gym or something, or a boxing gym, or get into some sort of sport. Went away. Feedback was in that area that is none of them had hardly been seen again. Got a message um, not long after. And basically, she joined the kickboxing club and was representing that their, their team. And she wasn't a problem. So I always said, if we could help just one kid through this. Yeah. And that was the one. Uh, and then I went to another place, something I'm particularly proud of. Gave off my story about not quitting. You know, time's going to get hard. You know, credit doesn't go to those people online who are kind of, you know, you know, putting you down for trying. Credit goes to the person who stands up and keeps moving forward. They keep taking those body blows. They get up and dust themselves down and they keep going. Um, and after that, well, I was walking out and, and one lad, he just came up to me walking alongside and I was taking him to the gym to do a, a gym session with him all. He said, thanks for that. He said, I, I tried to kill myself last year. I said, oh, no, why? And he's X, Y, and Z, I won't go into it and stuff. I said, oh, no, he goes, I've been thinking of it again before. He said, listen to you speak and tell me that there is another way. He's like, I don't think I'll ever think about that again. And it was just that moment there for if they, everything I've been through stops him doing that then it was worth it i'll do it again in a heartbeat so um so i get it's good now to get to impact and try and help you a massive feel about youth development so i get to kind of impart my knowledge of a horrific experiences on them and say look you're going to go through hard times it hopefully it's not as bad as mine but everyone's going to go when they get to adult life growing up you are going to uh, go through adversity and it's how you choose to deal with that it's how how you're going to do the side of it so yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. So let's just recap on all the different things you're doing. Jumped around all sorts. No, no, it's brilliant. It's brilliant because this. I'll just blame uh, blame the brain tumor. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally allowed to do that. So there's so many things that you're doing. I want to share all the links because there's going to be bits throughout there that has made people's ears prick up and say, "Oh, I want to get involved in that. I want to get involved with that." So if you Send me the, the links. That would be yeah, awesome. Really cool. Really yeah, cool. yeah, because um, yeah, I've got a video out on YouTube, which it's only a two and a half minute one. And it's just it's it's on my Twitter actually, um, at the top page. And it's we made it with a guy called Matt Lambert, who's worked with Red Bull, Lionel Messi, all the footballers, and we put it together for the foundation. And it's really it's only two two minutes thirty. It's quite powerful, and it's just a very brief, like very brief overview of my quick story about bike accident and the, and the cancer and it shows at the end of that it has the website for the foundation so if anyone with and it's not i'd say it's not just cancer it started off as that it's it's learning difficulties it's yeah it's depression anxiety all that that's mental health as well so the tackling the whole whole spectrum of it, it it's a superb as i said i've been in gyms trained all my life i've never been to one like this never wow We've got that, yeah. I've got a website which I'll send you over for specifically for cancer, which I post my story on. 
uh, treatment histories. I've got a list of supplements, all different stuff as well that's on, on there. So, and there's a guide on there, defeating cancer naturally guide I put on. They usually send out to people, but I just find it easiest to direct them to that website now. Um, and I know you're still raising money, aren't you, for the hospice, um, UK hospice? Yeah, 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 yeah I have been, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we do, yeah, my sister's currently doing the London Marathon for it. So, um, so she's doing that at the moment, training towards that. So I'll, I'll send you a, a, a link for that as well. And it's just using a picture. It's, it's, it's in my mum's memory, obviously, because yeah. she passed her there. And the hospice was a, Will St. John's Hospice was a huge part. The way they looked after, not just my mum, but us, was unreal. And like all the money we, would, we had raised, because at the Christie's with my mum, they had said, um, the guy there is one of the best in his field. And he said, no, there is something we can do, because we were told there wasn't. But when she went to be part of, she had a private clinic, when she went to get a test done to be part of his, you know, normal NHS clinic, she never yeah. got out. Um, what she thought was fluid around her stomach was just tumours. It spread, it was horrific. Um, and then so we managed to get a transfer to, we spent a while in, in um, the Christie's, brilliant hospital, but she didn't have her own ward. Everyone around is dying. Everyone's got cancer. Everyone, so we, I managed, we managed to get a move to, um, to Widow St. John's and they were building their own room, TV, could bring flowers in. And it was such a nice, nice setting for it. And to put just a, a positive spin on that, I always say, if my mum would have walked out and got hit by a bus, that would have been worse. I had two years really, but the, certainly me and my sister, the last six weeks, we were permanently with her. We got to say everything we needed to say. We got to say our goodbyes. We got to... So that's the positive I take. I had that time and I was with her when she passed and it was, it was peaceful. And that's kind of the positive I take out of that situation, which was horrific. Yeah. yeah so, so we're now raising money. She, my sister certainly at the moment, is doing the London Marathon. It's going to go to the UK hospice, but they are getting money. And the money we raised for her private treatment is now going to Will St. John's as well. So. Awesome. Uh, Dave, it's been so good talking to you and hearing your story. Uh, um, An absolutely incredible story from the motorbike accident all the way through to where you are now with it. You know, crikey me, what a a story. So thank you so much. No, no, no. It's just parts of me were just like at times and people who were going through this, fatigue kicks in. I remember getting up, going, walking upstairs, getting a shower and I'd have to sleep. And at one point, I was training once a week, and it was boom and bust. I'd have a day where I'm fine, go to the gym, yeah, yeah. Next week, I'd be wiped out, and I started grieving the person who I used to be. Sure. So, and even up to recently, I think I still was, because I was this person in charge of this unit, high-pressure job, driving in charge, yeah, rugby, yeah. So suddenly, having my wife check on me every five minutes, because she'd see me having a seizure. I've never seen it. I couldn't drive. I've only just got my driving back, license back this year, so four years. Mm. It's, it's green flat, but, and then not being able to train how I would, but all I used to think was I just need to fast forward a year, and now I train every day if I can. So if you're in this situation now, and you're struggling with fatigue, it will get better, trust me. You just need to plough through it. Keep positive, keep ploughing forward, roll with the punches, you will get out the end of it eventually. Awesome. Oh, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, my absolute pleasure. You you are, I know you say it doesn't sit well with you, but you are a, a real inspiration. So thank yeah. you for putting all that positivity out into the world because it, yeah. it, it is helping people. Well, you've got, to, you've got to surround yourself, I think I always say, with positive people. And I cut a load of people away with dead net moan because you can't have a positive life surrounded by people who are negative. And I call them like energy sucking vampires. If you ever have a conversation where he just moans nonstop, you come away going, drained so yeah you've got to stay positive you've got to have positive people around you and do positive things so awesome. well you're if we, yeah so you, rather than being a, uh, an energy vampire you're like um an energy fountain then <laughs> there, you, there you go i don't know if that's what i'm going to start using <laughs> yeah, energy fountain brilliant Wow, what a truly amazing guy Dave Bolton is. Look in the show notes for all the links to keep up with what Dave is doing and the charities he mentions. If you like this episode, then please do like and share it with everyone you think who may benefit from hearing it. If you want to continue the conversation, then head over to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or YouTube and I'll look forward to catching up with you there. Just search at Be Glad Movement and you should be able to find us. The Be Glad Movement podcast is free to listen to, but if you did want to support me in raising money for the Samaritans, feel free to head over to beglad.co.uk and use the link provided to donate. Your contribution would be so gratefully received and appreciated. With so much love, you've been listening to Pollyanna, Dave Bolton and the Be Glad Movement.